All right, good morning. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 37. That is Mark 12, 35 through 37. And if you want to, go ahead and uh, maybe put your thumb or something on Psalm 110, because we're going to be looking at that uh, a little bit later in the sermon. Uh, But we're continuing our study of Mark's Gospel, and this morning we come to a text where Jesus poses a question to his enemies concerning the Messiah. Since the end of chapter 11, our Lord Jesus has been answering questions. Uh, It's it's Tuesday of Passion Week, right? The end of chapter 11 on through, it's all one day. It's Tuesday of Passion Week. And representatives from the Sanhedrin have been relentlessly hitting Jesus with questions all day long. They've been asking questions that challenge his authority. They've been asking questions about the relationship between the believer and the government. Questions about the resurrection of the dead. And a question concerning what the greatest commandment is. And now they've all run out of questions. But now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And in our text, we will read our Lord ask a question about the Messiah. And he, again, he asks it to his opponents, particularly the scribes and Pharisees. And his question won't be answered. Either they don't know how to answer him, or they're too embarrassed at what the answer will be. And the question has to do with the nature and identity of the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? Is he merely a man, or is he something more? This text, like many texts in Mark's gospel, is, is very simple. And it's, I think its simplicity is part of its beauty. Because in this text, our Lord is going to reveal things about himself. Jesus' question in, in our verses this morning reveal his two natures. Not only does it reveal his two natures, but it reveals his future success and dominion over the universe. And it also reveals the futility of rejecting him. In this short passage before us this morning, there is glory. There is glory here. You know, earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Remember Mark 8, 29, who do you say that I am? And I think that the text this morning poses the same question to each one of us. And our answer is going to determine our eternal destiny. Who do you say Jesus is? Now with that said, if you would and are able, Please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to open your book and hear the voice of God speaking to us through it. But we cannot hear, understand, or believe savingly unless you put your blessing to your word. And so we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would illumine the text to us this morning. Please, God, make the verses before us shine brightly so that we can understand them and believe them and submit to them in faith. Teach us by your word and spirit and show us your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Show us the God-man. Show us our Savior. We ask for these things 
in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Um, to begin, we're going to start in verse 34b, so just the second part of verse 34 of Mark 12, uh, in order just to get a running jump at our text, because it really sets the stage. Mark writes, and after that, so after Jesus answered the question about the greatest commandment, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus has answered their questions all day long, right? These representatives from the Sanhedrin. And he has answered them so definitively and so thoroughly that they do not dare to ask him anything more. Over and over again, they had intended to trap him, but Jesus has avoided their traps. And even more than that, Jesus turned their questions against them and left them speechless. So apparently, according to Mark, they had taken enough of an intellectual, theological, and biblical beating, and they didn't want any more, right? So they quit asking questions. But I really like this. Just because they're done asking questions does not mean the Q&A session is over, does it? Right? N nothing. N not, not at all, because Jesus isn't done. They might be done with questions, but he's not, and nothing is over until the Lord of heaven and earth says so. So now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And his question is going to reveal some glorious truths about himself and his mission. We turn now to the beginning portion of our Lord's question. Verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? You'll remember that Christ means anointed one. Right? Christ is the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Uh, it, mean, it means the anointed one. Uh, the, the Messiah was the king of the Jews. The Messiah is God's appointed and anointed king who will rule over the kingdom of God and bring salvation to the people of God. Right? The, the, the Christ or the Messiah is the savior that the Old Testament prophesied and promised from Genesis 3.15 and onward. Right? He's the one that the Jews were looking for and waiting for. Now, obviously, we know that the Lord Jesus is the Christ, that's why we call him Jesus Christ, right? It's not his last name, right? Jesus the Christ. The, the, the men that Jesus is addressing here, they don't believe that he is the Messiah, but regardless of what they believe, he is the Messiah. Why do I bring that up? Well, we see then that Jesus is actually asking them a question about himself. It's kind of funny. What do you think about the Christ? Right? What do you think about me? Jesus obviously knows the answer, right? So, so clearly, he, he's, not, he's not seeking information from them. Rather, he's testing them on their knowledge and understanding about the nature and identity of the Messiah. These men are supposed to be experts in the Old Testament scripture. Right? They're part of the elite religious ruling class of Israel. They are the scholars of scholars of their day. So if anyone should know about the Messiah, it should be them. And so he's asking them a question about the Messiah. Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, that may sound kind of like an odd question to some of us. So what does that mean? It's actually pretty simple. It means that the scribes said that the Messiah was to be a descendant in the lineage of David. Right? A son of David. King David. And... and any male descendant, if you're wondering, well, well, David's son, David died centuries and centuries ago. Know this, any male descendant of a family line could be referred to as a son of the patriarch of that family, 
right? So, so again, this just means that the Messiah was to be a son or descendant of King David, a human male offspring from David's family line. Now, let me be clear about something real quick. Jesus is not saying that that's an improper title. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that's a wrong title. Um, how do we know that? Well, Jesus has been referred to as the son of David multiple times during his earthly ministry, and he's never had a problem with it, right? You remember blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus has no problem with that. The Syrophoenician woman, son of David, Lord, have mercy on my daughter. She's demon-possessed. Jesus had no problem with her calling him that. Uh, more than that, the Old Testament is very clear that the Messiah is indeed a man, right? The Messiah is a human male descendant of King David. We see this in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, 30 and 33, Ezekiel 34, I think Hosea 6. There's a ton of places in the Old Testament where we see that the Messiah is to be a male descendant of David. Um, but I'll just read one for you. It's the Christmas passage, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All right, so we see a child is to be born. A son is going to be given, and he will sit on the throne of David. That means he's going to be a descendant from David's line, right? So, so there, there's just one. We could look at a whole other text, but I think that that establishes the point. The Messiah is clearly the son of David, a human male descendant, and our Lord Jesus is not disputing that fact. The problem that Jesus is addressing in this question is that the scribes and Pharisees believed that the Messiah would be a mere man, that he would be only a man, that the Messiah is the son of David, and that's it. Now, they believed that the Messiah would be a great man, God's chosen man to rule over Israel, the greatest king of all time, who was going to rule over the whole earth. But at the end of the day, he would still be a man like all other men. You could put it this way. The scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, and that's all that they say, right? So son of David is a true and proper title for the Messiah, but it's not completely adequate. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's not a completely adequate title, as we shall see. So again, I know I'm laboring the point, but this question's weird, and, and, the, and it doesn't make sense unless you understand this. What Jesus is pointing out is that the scribes believe that the Messiah is only a man, but that does not seem to fit with the Old Testament verse that Jesus is about to quote from. In verse 36, our Lord quotes from Psalm 110. He says, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. And just a uh, fun fact for you. It is the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the entire New Testament. One preacher that I listen to a lot says, this is God's favorite Bible verse. It's the most frequently quoted one, and it's full of meaning concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I say quoted, it's either quoted or alluded to. Some famous passages is Acts 2, Peter's sermon, Pentecost. This is quoted. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 
It's alluded to there by Paul. There's a lot of different places where Psalm 110 uh, is either quoted directly or alluded to. And again, it's, it's about Jesus. Uh, but notice here, before we go any further, that Jesus says that King David wrote this psalm. Well, how do we know that? Well, that's what the superscription of the psalm says. And you say, what's a superscription? Whenever you looked in the psalms, you know there's always capital, all capital things. A psalm of David. Right? That's actually part of the psalm. In a lot of our English translations, they're in italics. There's like a name for the psalm. That's not inspired. But the all capital right before the psalm begins, that's actually part of the Bible. Right? And the superscription of Psalm 110 says a psalm of David. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or as Jesus says here, in the Holy Spirit, wrote this. Now, don't miss the significance of this. God revealed this to David through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to labor this point. The psalm David wrote is sacred scripture. Jesus is affirming the divine inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures. Here's the point I think Jesus is making when he says, David in the Holy Spirit wrote. Jesus is saying, David didn't get this wrong. David did not get this wrong. David wasn't mistaken. David did not get this from his own mind. God spoke through David's pen. So think of it this way. In a sense, what Jesus is getting at here is God said it first and then David said it second. God said it first and then David wrote it down. So this is what God says through David about the Messiah. So it's not wrong. It's not wrong. And a quick note here. Here's a front row seat to our Lord's view of the Bible. He believes that the scriptures are inspired by God that they are the very word of God, that the scripture was written down by men but came through the Holy Spirit. And shocker, Peter says the same thing, right? A disciple of the Lord Jesus, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the view Jesus has. Jesus doesn't view the scriptures as a received tradition from men. He takes the scriptures to be the word of the living God. And notice this as well. As we'll see in a moment, this is really cool to think about. We'll see this in a minute. Our Lord's entire argument from Psalm 110 verse 1 hinges on the superscription of the psalm. It hinges on, on, on the authorship of the psalm. The superscription says, a psalm of David. And hear me, and I don't mean this to be irreverent. This is just the facts. If that superscription is incorrect, then Jesus' entire argument is trash. The argument we're about to see Jesus make. If the superscription is incorrect, Jesus' argument is foolishness. But our Lord, God in the flesh, <laughs> takes it to be correct and hinges his entire argument on it. And this shows us that our Lord believed that even the smallest thing in the Bible, like the superscription of a psalm, is inspired by God. Jesus believes in what, in theology, we call the plenary inspiration of Scripture. Plenary, that means all of it. Every single word of the Bible is inspired and infallible and inerrant because it comes from the mouth of God. He believes every single syllable of the Scriptures came from God. And if he is our Lord... We should adopt the same view of the book. His thoughts are to be our thoughts. 
So we should adopt the exact same view of Scripture as he had. But back to the text. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't pass that up. I had to show you that. Psalm 110 was recognized by pretty much everybody as a messianic psalm. Clearly, Jesus thinks it is. That, that's enough. But I, I just want to bring this up, that this is a psalm about the Messiah. We know that the Jews believe that because of ancient rabbinic commentaries on Psalm 110. And we also can just infer it from the text because Jesus applies this verse to the Messiah and no one argues with him about it. Right? They're quiet at the end of it. They don't say, well, that's not about the Messiah. There's no, there's no argument. Everyone believed that Psalm 110 is about the Messiah. But in this Messianic Psalm, there is no mention about the Messiah being David's son. But the Psalm does say that the Messiah is David's Lord. And remember, this was written under divine inspiration. David doesn't say this merely from his own mind. David says this in the Holy Spirit that is under the direction of God. So this is divine revelation that the Messiah is David's Lord. So let's now consider Psalm 110, verse 1. Turn there in your Bible. Psalm 110, verse 1. You say, well, the quotation's in Mark 12. Why do you want me to turn to Psalm 110? Well, the Hebrew of the text is important to Jesus' argument. And the, the, the people he was debating with would have known the Hebrew of the text. This is very important. And our Old Testament translation in the ESV actually reflects the Hebrew better. Are we there? All right, you're going to pretend. Some of you are pretending. Some of you are saying, I'm not going to turn there. And that's, that's to your own detriment, but whatever. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm a smart aleck. I, I do this to give you more time to get there. Um, <laughs> Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now notice the difference in the two times the word Lord is used in our English translation. The first one is in all capital letters. And when you see that in your English translation, it signifies that the proper covenant name of God is there in the Hebrew. Right? So this is Yahweh. Or maybe the, the Puritans often said Jehovah. I don't think that that's as accurate. Yahweh is the word here. So that's all capital Lord is Yahweh. That is the covenant name of God, God's most formal name. And the second Lord in our translation, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the second Lord is a capital L and the rest are all lowercase. And the word there being translated is Adonai. And, and that word is one of the titles of God. Right? You say, well, how do, how do I know that that's one of God's titles? Well, there are many times that Lord is, or Adonai, Lord, is used to refer to God. But one example in the Psalms, a Psalm that David wrote, so we see David's consistently using this term this way, is Psalm 8, 1. You guys know this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That beautiful Psalm. It actually says, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So again, Adonai is a title for God, and it means something like sovereign ruler, one with all authority, master, king, lord, right? One with authority over me, my master. So then, Psalm 110 says, Yahweh said to my God, or my sovereign, my ruler, my king, my superior, Yahweh said to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's pretty clear what's being said. The Messiah is called David's sovereign. David calls him Lord. David calls the Messiah 
his master and ruler and God. That's the plain meaning of this verse. For Jesus' purposes at this point, that is the plain meaning here. He wants us to see that. Again, the Messiah is given the divine title of Lord, and he's given it by King David himself. More than that, in Hebrew kind of thinking, the, a, a question emerges for us. Right, I want to put you, let's, let's pretend that we're Jews for a moment. Who is greater than the king of Israel? David was king when he wrote this psalm. Who is higher than the highest man in the nation? Who ranks before him? Who could possibly be above the king? Or, let's get a little bit more theological here. Who could be Lord over the king of the people of God? Who could be in a position of authority above the one that God has put in authority over his people? If you don't have any biases, the answer is pretty apparent. Only God. Only God would be Lord over the king of the people of God. Only God would be higher than the highest appointed man over his people. Only God outranks the king of Israel. So we must then conclude that the second person spoken of in this psalm, the Messiah, is God. But catch this. Let's not get confused here. The Messiah is also distinct from the first person who is speaking to him. One person speaks to another person in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord. They're not the same person, but they're both God. Here's a hint at the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. There is more than one person who has the fullness of divinity. There is more than one person who shares the divine essence. This psalm tells us of two. We know that there's a third one. That's revealed later in Scripture because God progressively reveals things. It's called progressive revelation. But this divine Messiah, David goes on to write, is given a seat of authority and privilege at the right hand of Yahweh, at the right hand of God. Now listen, hear me. Not even angels were given a seat at the right hand of God. The angels, the holy heavenly angels, are servants. They're ministers of God. They do not sit in royal splendor at his right hand. Read Hebrews 1. So which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? That's what the author of Hebrews says. The angels don't get to sit there. Certainly no mere man, a sinner, right, for all men who are born of natural generation are sinners. Surely no mere man would be permitted to such a high and exalted position next to the God who is holy, holy, holy. No man would sit there. No man could sit there. No mere man could sit there. And this divine Messiah is promised in Psalm 110, verse 1. He is promised that he will rule over his enemies. God tells the Messiah that he will crush his enemies under his feet. There will be total victory for the Messiah. Having your enemy for your footstool is an ancient uh, expression. It, it, it means essentially the same thing as putting your foot on the necks of your enemies. It's a sign. What happens? If you have your foot on someone's neck, you've beaten them. If your enemies, if you're propping your feet up on your enemies, they are completely subdued. It's a sign of complete and utter conquest of your foes. So the text is saying that once the Messiah is enthroned, that he will sit at God's right hand, ruling and reigning until all of his enemies are conquered, until they're under his feet. The Messiah is clearly greater than David. 
clearly. But listen to me. Please don't misunderstand what I'm, what I'm saying. It is not merely that the Messiah will do greater things than David. It's more than that. The Messiah in himself is intrinsically greater than David. He is David's Lord. David is declaring under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he is lower than the Messiah, that the Messiah is his king and David is his subject. Now a question for you, how can a king say this about one of his descendants? We're very American and we don't think this way, so bear with me, right? We don't like monarchies, although we live in one. Read Psalm 2. Jesus is king, that's what I'm getting at. We live in a monarchy. A king, to say this about his, one of his descendants, does not make sense in a human monarchy. No descendant is greater than his ancestor. Why? Because he came from the ancestor. Without the ancestor, the descendant has no existence. Please hear me out. No grandfather king would ever bow down to his grandson. That would ordinarily be completely improper. Sons are considered subordinate to their fathers and ancestors. But here we see King David declaring that the Messiah who was to come is greater than him. So there must then be something different about the Messiah. David knows the Messiah comes from his lineage. And he says he's greater than me. The Messiah must then not be a mere man. He is a man. The scriptures are very clear about that. David knew that. But he is not only a man. He is much more. He is much more. We come now to the end of our Lord's question, verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Under the inspiration of God. Again, I'm laboring the point. David called the Messiah Lord. So in what sense then is the Messiah the son of David? How is the Davidic, Davidic lineage of the Messiah to be harmonized with the Messiah also being David's Lord? Both are true. I get that. Both are true. Jesus believes that both statements are true. Why? Because both statements are stated in the scriptures. Scripture says both, so we're obligated to believe them both. But how are we to harmonize and understand them? That's what Jesus' question is. This is a very Jewish way of posing a question. You take these two texts that seem to oppose each other and say, harmonize them. How do you understand both of them? We actually do this today. Me and Stephen were talking. We do this in, in, in the church. Hey, what do you do with these two texts? They seem to, we're, we're way more Jewish than we think in the church, by the way. Dare I say it, we are the Israel of God. But anyhow, how do we harmonize these things? Right? How is the Messiah only the human son of David? How can the scribes say such a thing? That's the question being posed here. How can the scribes say he's only a man? And here's the answer. Are you ready? The scribes are wrong. There's the answer. The scribes are wrong. That's Jesus' answer. The Messiah is not a mere man. He is truly God and truly man. He is David's son and David's Lord. That's the only way Listen, that is the only way that you can harmonize everything that is said about the Messiah. There is no other way. Here's a fun fact of history for you. Some of you will think that this made me laugh in my studies, actually. After Jesus threw down this question, and the answer became so abundantly clear that the Messiah is David's son and David's Lord, the Jews recognized the problem. 
The Jewish people, under, or they recognized the problem that Jesus just threw down for them. And they understood it so well that some rabbis, in the time after Christianity began to spread, some rabbis actually stopped saying that Psalm 110 was about the Messiah. <laughs> you can read their commentaries after Christianity began to spread. They went from, yeah, this is clearly messianic, to, hmm, hmm, this is about Abraham. <laughs> or Melchizedek. Or, or someone else. Even... Even though it says the psalm was written by David. Well, this was written by, they'll say this was written by one of Abraham's servants. Or this was written about David by one of David's servants. In order to get around what Jesus just said, they were willing to say that the superscription of the psalm was, it was wrong. You want to see if there, there's a picture of the depravity of man. So much do people not want Jesus to be who he is that they will actually say the word of God is just a lie. But the Jews, they did this because Jesus once for all tied the Jews in knots with this question. If this psalm is about the Messiah, and it is, then the Messiah is the God-man. And the kicker to everything is that the religious rulers of Israel, they knew that Jesus and his disciples believed that he is the Messiah. They knew that he believed that. They knew that his followers believed that. Jesus publicly, multiple times, received the title of Son of David. And he never told people, don't call me that. He said, that's fine. You need to go a little bit further, obviously, but Son of David's adequate. Or, or you can say that for now until you learn some more. Jesus entered Jerusalem just a few days earlier on a donkey, just as the Old Testament said that the Messiah would. The people in the streets cried out what? Hosanna to the Son of David. And he never rebuked them. He let them say it. He has claimed to be able to forgive sins. He has said that he is Lord of the Sabbath and many other like things. It, it, listen, it's been more or less in veiled actions and statements, but to anyone paying attention, Jesus clearly identifies himself as the Messiah. But not merely a man. He's also taken prerogatives to himself that belong only to God, like being able to forgive sins and declaring that the Sabbath day is his day. He said that he is the Messiah, and he's also implied that he is more. Beyond that, his most intimate followers have confessed the same thing in private. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but God has. Jesus accepts the title of Christ and Son of God. Jesus is letting these men know who he is. He's not hiding it anymore. He's being more open about it than he has his entire ministry. He knows he is going to die within the next two days, and it's time to let people know who I am and why I'm here. He is the Messiah. And do you see what Jesus has done with this question? He's just disclosed something about himself. He is the God-man. He is the God-man. He is God. He is the Messiah, which means he is David's Lord. He is David's Lord according to his divine nature. And he is man. He is David's son according to the flesh, his human nature. What a glorious thing that it is to say. What a glorious thing it is. Jesus is God. To meditate upon that should, should stop us dead in our tracks. Jesus is God. Allow me to exalt the Lord for a moment. He is the king of the universe. 
He is the omnipotent one, the all-knowing one, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. He is the one whose nature is comprehended by none but himself. Let me say that again. You can understand some things about God, but you can't understand everything about God. He is the one whose nature is comprehended by none but himself. He is the one who needs nothing. He is the one in whom all things are held together. He is the first and the last and the ruler of kings on earth. He is God. He is greater than all men. He is the creator of all things, both visible and invisible. He is the one to whom all men owe their love, worship, allegiance, affection, and obedience. He is the God that he just spoke of in last week's sermon that you are to love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the one, as Paul says, in whom we live and move and have our being. He is God. That's our Jesus. David's Lord. And he is also a man. He's also a man. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He had a mother according to the flesh. The eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Hear me. I've heard that in American Christianity, we tend to de-emphasize this, and our European brothers are better at it than we are. He cried tears like us. He grew weary like we do. He hungered and thirsted. He had physical needs like all human beings. He learned to walk and talk. Hear me, he wasn't pretending to be a baby for a few years. He was a baby. He learned to walk and talk. He grew like all men. He aged. The Ancient of Days aged. He felt pain. He bled. He got blisters. He got sick. He had to get haircuts. Yeah, we don't think about that, do we? He had to get haircuts. He had foods that he liked and did not like. He had to learn things. He was truly man. And this is the great mystery, isn't it? That the Son of God would take a human nature to himself and become truly human without ever ceasing to be God or changing his divine nature. You ask me, how? I don't know. No one knows. How? I don't know. But the Bible says so. God has revealed this, and so we receive it. Though we cannot fully comprehend it, we believe it, because this is what we see in the Word. So Christian, let me say this. Behold your God. There is none like Him. False religions have things like demigods, or even gods coming to earth and looking like men, but there has never been anything like this, where God takes a true human nature to Himself. What condescension. I say this all the time. What condescension. What humility from God that he would become one of us. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And this makes us ask the question, why did he do this? Why did he take on flesh? Well, as we confess each week in the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation, he came, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human for us and for our salvation. Hebrews 2.17 puts it this way, and it's much better because it's scripture. Therefore, he had to be made. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Well, what's he going to do as a high priest? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's why. For us and for our salvation. That he might become a great high priest for us and make propitiation for the sins of his people. The Son of God became a man in order to do the work of the Messiah. The prophets had spoken long ago that the Messiah would save God's people. That he would be crushed for their sins in order that they would be made clean and be able to enter into an eternal covenant of peace with God. The Son of God became a man in order that he, as our great and faithful high priest, might offer himself up as the propitiation for our sins. That he might satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf for our sins. We needed a man to bear the weight of the sin of men. We needed a man to suffer the wrath of God on behalf of sinful men. We also needed a man to keep God's covenant. That is to render perfect obedience to God in the place of sinful men. Only a man can represent mankind. And so God became a man in order to bring men to God. Glory! This is glorious! God became a man in order to bring men to God. The Son of God became like us in every way except sin, without ever ceasing to be God, in order that he might die for our sins and live for our righteousness. This is glory. This is glorious. He did this so that our sins would be paid for in his suffering and death, and that his perfect life of obedience to God would be credited to us through faith in him. God became a man in order to save all who would ever believe upon him. Jesus is truly God and truly man, two natures in one person. He is David's son and David's Lord. He is the God-man, and he is the only Savior. Hear me, as the God-man, he is the only one who can bring sinful men before a holy God and make peace between the two by the blood of his cross. Here stands God, the offended Holy One. Here stands sinful men, the offender, and Jesus reaches out as the God-man and touches both and makes peace by the blood of his cross. This is the Messiah of Psalm 110, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is our Jesus. And he is glorious. He's taught us about his person. But I think he teaches us more. He teaches us something about his mission in this question. He teaches us that he will be successful. He teaches us that he will conquer. Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the psalm goes on to say, rule in the midst of your enemies. And it goes on to say that he will shatter all who oppose him. He will shatter the skulls of kings. Warlike language is used to describe the Messiah's conquest of the whole world. His scepter, his gospel will go forth to all the nations and he will conquer them all. And he will not grow weary until the work is finished. The last verse of Psalm 110 says, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. What does that mean? He will refresh himself with water because he won't stop until it's done. Until what's done? His conquest of the nations. 
It's getting real post-millennial up in here, isn't it? His conquest of the nations. His enemies will be put under his feet. He will be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will rule and reign from heaven. Hear me. He will be killed by his enemies in two days. But nevertheless, on the third day, he will rise. After making purification for sins, he will rise. And then he will ascend to his throne in heaven and will sit down, as the author of Hebrews says, and he will be crowned king of all kings, lord of all lords. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wins. Contrary to the popular view of the Jews of that day, Jesus' kingdom is no mere earthly kingdom. Right? Any of our dispensationalist friends, God bless you, but no. His throne is not in the earthly political nation of Israel. His throne is in heaven, at the right hand of God. His dominion is not over a nation state, it is over the nations. Let me say it again. His dominion is not over a nation state, it is over the nations, plural. His dominion is universal, it's over the whole earth. As Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 says, the Messiah says this, actually. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Brothers and sisters, Jesus wins. He wins. As the Apostle Peter, we're going to look at a few texts here real quick. As Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he says this, by the way, after Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's enthroned and he's ruling. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, referring to God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brothers and sisters, the king is enthroned. The world is his. He has sat down, and his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Dare I say it, Psalm 72, he shall have dominion. Nothing is going to stop him. He gave all, and now all belongs to him. Jesus is declaring to them in this quotation of the psalm that he will die to save sinners, but he will rise victorious, and he will go forth to conquer. This is our Jesus. He's revealed his person. And he's revealed his mission. But also in this question, he has implicitly taught us something about his opponents. He's taught us something about his opponents. They are rejecting God when they reject him. Their refusal to listen and accept the Lord Jesus is ultimately 
futile. Why is that? Because it is utter folly for man to fight against God. Their rejection of Jesus will end in their own condemnation. They've rebelled against God, and God will always, in the end, extinguish the rebellion and cast down the rebels. Remember that. Jesus will conquer. These men who have opposed him are rejecting the God-man. What does that mean? Not only are they rejecting God in kind of an abstract sense, but they're rejecting the only one who can save them because they're rejecting the God-man. And unless they repent, they will be damned forever under the white-hot wrath of God. And the same is true for all people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ today. They are rejecting God. They are living in complete folly, and their rejection will end in their eternal condemnation because they are rejecting the only Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ. As I, as I near the close of this sermon, then let me say a few more things about this text. I think that in his question, so maybe here are some concluding thoughts for you. I think that in his question, our Lord is calling the scribes to reconsider their beliefs about the Messiah. I think that's what's going on here. He's not being combative toward them like they were for him. I think he's inviting them to rethink their positions, rethink the Messiah. Hear me, if they've missed this huge thing about the Messiah being God as well as man, then maybe they should question their entire tradition concerning the Messiah. They've missed a monumental truth about the Messiah, so they should rethink everything. More than that, shouldn't they then reconsider the Lord Jesus? He's just taught them something about the Messiah that they missed. And it's proven that they missed it because they don't say anything back to him. They don't know what to say. He knows the scriptures better than they do. He understands things that they don't, and he just proved it. He's wiser than them. He's more skilled in the scriptures than they are. In light of this, they should reconsider just who it is that they've been questioning. They should reconsider just who it is that they've been opposing. They should be saying to themselves, maybe he really is who he claims to be. Maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he really is God come in the flesh. Maybe he really is the Son of God. And maybe we are utter fools for fighting against him. And the truth is this, they were fools because he is all of those things. And this makes us ask ourselves this question. What do I believe about Jesus? There's the question. What do I believe about Jesus? Do I believe that he is David's son and David's Lord? Do I believe that he is the son of God who took on flesh was born, lived, died, and was raised to save sinners? Do I believe that he has risen, ascended, seated at the right hand of God, and will subdue all his enemies? Do I believe that he is the king? And have I submitted to him in faith? Please hear me. Each one of us must answer these questions. Children, hear me. Each one of us must answer these questions. Your parents cannot answer for you. Church, I can't answer for you. Every person must answer for themselves. So who do you say that Jesus is? Is he merely a man? Or is he very God of very God? Begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Was he a fool that perished on a cross? 
Or is he the savior of sinners who is risen and reigning? You must answer. And your answer will determine your eternal destiny. You will believe in the God-man, Jesus Christ, to your eternal salvation, or you will reject him to your eternal damnation. May God grant each one of us faith in this Lord Jesus, who is both David's son and David's Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and King, we thank you for this text. This text that reveals glorious things about our Lord, that reveals the future outcome of his cross, and that reveals the folly of men who reject him. God, I pray that if there's an unbeliever here among us or a falsely professing Christian among us, that you would hit them with this text and bury it deep in their heart and let it bear fruit of faith. Have mercy. And having seen the glory of Christ, help us who do believe to be more determined to walk in a manner worthy of those who believe in this Jesus, the glorious one, David's son and David's Lord. Have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.